This is Science Moab, a show exploring the science happening in Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm Peggy Hodgkins, and today we are talking about the annular eclipse that will be visible over the Western Hemisphere in October of this year. I'm Chris White. I'm currently the eclipse coordinator working with the Earth to Sky Interagency Partnership. This is a long-standing partnership between the National Park Service and NASA, based out of Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland. Yeah, before that, I was a, a park interpreter through state parks for over 15 years. So I did a lot of night sky interpretation. So today we are talking about the annular solar eclipse, which should be visible to uh, the Moab area and Southeast Utah uh, in October of this year. I wanted to start by having you explain what is meant by an annular solar eclipse. An annular solar eclipse is a lot different than a total solar eclipse. And really what it is, is the position of where the moon is in its orbit around Earth. So there's times when the moon is just slightly farther away and times when it's a little closer. And so that decides what type of eclipse we get. An annular eclipse, the moon is farthest away it can be from us. And so it doesn't cover the full disk of the sun. And so you don't get to see the corona. Instead, you see a ring of sun around the silhouette of the moon. And so that ring is basically where we get the name annular eclipse. So annulus means ring in Latin. In Moab, you will see an over 90% partial eclipse if you stayed in Moab. You need to drive down toward the Needles District or Indian Creek or uh, Bluff, or sorry, not Bluff. Yeah, Bluff's in it. Blanding, those areas will have the full annularity where you would see that ring of fire around the, the moon. But here in Moab, you'll, you'll see mostly a ring of fire, but there'll be a little bit of spot where you will not see any sun um, just because of where we are. We're just slightly outside of annularity. So you have this swath, and I, you know, I imagine it's the same for a total eclipse as well. And then the further away from that swath, you're getting less and less of the full eclipse. How, and you, these things are predicted years in advance, you know when they're coming. How, how is all that predicted? That is some complex math that I really don't understand myself. But if you ask the Mr. Eclipse man, he will know. Fred Fred used to work for Goddard Space Flight Center. Um, uh-huh. And he became so good at predicting eclipse paths that he, he doesn't know that he's retired. That's all he does. Oh, wow. But he, he's always been an eclipse chaser. And he's, he's the best resource for figuring stuff like that out. I do know that the, the path itself, Goddard... Well, actually, it was in the NASA Science Visualization Studio created this really, really incredible eclipse map. And on that map, you can actually see that the circles that represent the moon are not perfectly round. And that's because it's taking into account the topography of the moon, where it will be in its rotation as it goes across the U.S., And so it tells you pretty accurately, like, you'll have two minutes here, you'll have three minutes here, or, 
you know, you're going to have a partial eclipse of 80%. So it's a pretty incredible map. Uh, a lot of work is put into it and it's produced every year. And, and I think the one now has the annular eclipse path that we spoke of, and then also the total eclipse path, which will happen in April of next year, April 8th of next year. How much variation is there in the lunar path from year to year? Are you able to predict it out 10 years or, or no? Oh yeah, they have, they have eclipses predicted out for uh, far into the future. I think there's like four or five that are gonna hit Australia over the next decade a lot are going to hit Australia and we're not going to see another one again for quite some time, at least a total solar eclipse. So it's, this is really your year to, if you want to travel and see a, an eclipse of some sort, you've got the annular or the total, or you could go do both. Yeah. And, and they're very different. So, you know, with the annular eclipse, you, you don't get that darkness, right. you know, it's going to be more like sunset colors on the horizons with maybe a dark cloud above you. That's what it's going to seem like. But you'll see that golden ring around the moon, which is pretty, pretty incredible to see. And then with the total eclipse, it's very, very different, right? You, you get that nice darkness that you can see. And you can actually see the shadow approaching. When it goes over the top of you, it gets really cold. All the animals change their behaviors. <laughs> People get crazy because we're all excited because that's totality, right? When it's right over you. And then you can see the corona of the, the sun around the moon. And then as it sweeps off, it goes back to daytime, which it's, it's quite an experience. Um, it's never truly dark. It's not like midnight or anything, but it's, it's like a deep twilight. That's totally interesting. What, what is the science behind having the path be more of a north west trajectory or a northeast trajectory across the continent that makes any sense it depends on which side of the earth the moon is on when it's happening okay that makes sense it is interesting because we like to think as humans we like to think that the sun is still and all the planets are orbiting around the sun and none of that is true yeah the sun is moving we're moving (laughs) as we orbit so it's it's really quite a beautiful thing and there's beautiful animations on science visualization studio that you can go and look at that will show that animation that's very neat because yeah there's so many things moving and right movement is not 100 percent precise in other words Mm-mm. recurring there's wobble and all that kind of stuff so it is amazing that it ever happens and that we can actually predict it and enjoy it. <laughs> In terms of trying to view the annulus, uh-huh. uh, it's going to be brighter than a total eclipse. So, I mean, how would you recommend trying to view it? With an annular eclipse, because the sun is always visible around the moon, you have to always wear solar viewers or some kind of solar protection. And if you're using a camera or a telescope, you have to have solar filters that are fitted to those pieces of equipment to be safe. Or you you just need to make a pinhole projector to view an annular eclipse. But with the total eclipse, that message is a little different. You can take them off during totality and you'll know when that time is because you'll stop seeing any light coming through your solar viewers. 
And so then if you remove them, you'll see the corona. And then the second you see what they call Bailey's beads, which is these little beads of light that are coming through the valleys on the moon as the sun starts to return. The second you see that, you put your solar viewers back on. And then you get to watch the partial eclipse retreat. Okay, so get solar viewers and they're readily available? They are. The, the best place I would tell you to go is the American Astronomical Society has an eclipse page and they have certified vendors. They're certifying vendors as being safe. Because I, I know in 2017, there was a, a problem with some eclipse glasses not actually being uh, the, the proper filter. <laughs> and so this is the way to avoid that. Keep yourself safe. Yeah. And, and if you don't want to, if you don't really care whether you're actually looking directly at it, you can always just do pinhole projectors out of like a cereal box. Yeah. You can do it out of a shipping box. It doesn't yeah. matter. Yeah. There's instructions all over online on how to do that. Uh, just remember to put the, the pinhole toward the sun and you look away. <laughs> exactly. Don't, don't look at it. And, and, and if you have less time than that, like you just find out about it the day of, it's not too late. You can literally just cross your fingers in kind of a waffle pattern. And those little holes will make pinhole projections onto a white surface below. Trees, trees will do the same thing, filtering light through their leaves. So you'll see it everywhere. You'll start to see these crescent-shaped shadows of, and light. It's very odd. Are you doing anything special to promote or prepare for the eclipse this year? Yes. Earth to Sky supports one national park for each of the eclipses. And we will actually be at Mesa Verde National Park uh, with a group from NASA's Solar System Exploration Division and Citizen Science Project called Globe Observer. And then I believe we might possibly have someone that's working on the outreach efforts for the PUNCH mission, which is this really, really cool mission, heliophysics mission coming up, where they're going to use satellites in orbit around Earth to really study intensely the solar weather between uh, the sun and Earth, wow. which is going to be amazing. Yeah. You know, we're just, we're living in like this most beautiful time, I think, personally, because we, we can see total eclipses. We know that in the future, the moon will have moved far enough away from Earth that you will no longer get total eclipses. They'll all be annular eclipses. Just pretty neat. I mean, the moon is moving away from us probably just slightly slower than your fingernails would grow in a year. So it's, it's not significant, but it's enough that, you know, over time, eventually it will become far enough away that we won't get total eclipses anymore. I mean, is, it a, is the gravitational pull weakening? Why is that a normal pr process where moons move further away from their planets? It has been since it formed. Been um, moving away. Yeah, the, the moon, when it initially formed, is about 50% closer, they, they are estimating, than it is today. And so it's just been gradually moving away from us. Yeah. How long ago was the moon formed? Do we know that? That's, that's a good question. And there's some debate there. Like, we're not absolutely certain. 
Uh, some uh, planetary geologists think that it probably happened right after the Earth formed. And then some think it's maybe a billion, uh, sorry, yeah, a billion years later. So we don't really know for sure the exact timeline yet. Do we have any idea why a planet would have a singular moon versus multiple moons? Size. Size definitely makes a difference. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Your core is what the core of a planet is, is typically what has the gravitational pull, right? And so it warps space time really. And so that's, that's why you get these orbits. I mean, Venus doesn't have any moons, neither does Mercury. Yeah. So it, it makes a lot of sense that these big gas giants would be the ones that would have all the moons because they have so much mass that anything that comes by them, they just kind of latch onto. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Very cool. We talked a bit about uh, some of the activities you have planned uh, for the eclipse, but are there any any kind of science experiments or activities that NASA is is planning to conduct during this year's eclipse? Through science activation, which is a, a section of NASA, there there is a a lot of different citizen science projects, and some of them are dealing directly with the eclipse efforts. So Globe Observer has uh, it's a wonderful citizen science project you can do anytime. They do uh, precipitation, tree tree canopy, things like that when the eclipse is not happening. But then during the eclipse, they also add an eclipse section where you can go on and you they have you monitor the temperature through the entire eclipse, as well as cloud cover. Oh, wow. So you watch what the cloud cover does and you record it at different times. And then they're also saying if you if you can put a windsock up, you know, if you if you notice that it changes during the eclipse, they're interested in hearing about that too. Or if you have a weather station and you just happen to be in the path, all that data is very valuable to them. And you have to sign up ahead of time because you do have to take some courses for the the regular globe observer, but I don't think you do for the eclipse. Okay. But you do have to have a thermometer, like an outdoor thermometer. And then there's another one called Eclipse Soundscapes. And this one you actually would kind of want to be on the path, but away from people, because you kind of want to monitor the changes in the wildlife that happen during eclipses. And so there's certain protocol. And this one's really built with inclusivity in mind. They, Arissa does such a wonderful job of like figuring out how to do everything so that anyone can participate in the citizen science effort. They have a, an app you can download to a, a phone or an iPad that will change pitch as the light changes. Hmm. And it will also vibrate at different intensities, which is really, really great. And then once you've collected the data that they, they're looking for, then you actually get to help process that as well. Huh. So you get to work with the scientists and, and process the information. Uh, there's also a couple groups that if, and if anyone is doing outreach, uh, they're really great groups with subject matter experts that can help you out. And that's Eclipse Ambassadors Off the Path. And they pair amateur astronomers and undergraduate students. And, and then they try to target underrepresented groups within the community to present to. It's a great program. And then we also have the NASA Solar System Ambassadors, which they're found all over the U.S. They're actually worldwide now. And 
<laughs> I've been a solar system ambassador for three years. It's a volunteer position with the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and we get a, like 45 to 50 hours of training from other uh, scientists, engineers, uh, all these people that work throughout NASA's network of centers. And in return, you know, we, we're considered subject matter experts, so we go out and do presentations for our local communities or wherever we get called to. It's fantastic. Yeah. There's a couple other really fun things that are going to happen. Uh-huh. There's a nationwide ballooning project where they're going to use high-altitude balloons to release scientific payloads up into the upper atmosphere to study the effects of the dark and light and dark on the ionosphere, which is the, the upper atmosphere of Earth. And they're also going to put off some sounding rockets, which do, will do similar research. But sounding rockets just go up really, really quickly and get higher than the high-altitude balloons. And so they'll be sending those up in several different places throughout the U.S. too. That's so amazing. I mean, they're they're studying the effect of the darkness. Yeah, because uh, the ionosphere is charged when UV light and X-ray light is hitting it. At nighttime, it's the cosmic radiation that's hitting the ionosphere. It keeps it slightly charged, but nothing like during the daytime. So we want to better understand that cycle. So they want, they're trying to see if that, because it's a brief time. Yeah. Darkness. Very brief. So they're trying to see if, if it affects it at all, or do they know it does affect it? They're just not sure. They, yeah, they know it does, and so they just want to better understand it. Yeah. more, more and, and it's it's also the same for, there's a, there's a citizen science project called Radio Jove. It's another, J-O-V-E. It's uh-huh. another one that, you would want to be away from people to do, but you have antennas and then you build a little radio telescope and you actually pick up radio waves. Because we also know that that same thing, that the ionosphere not being quite as charged allows radio waves to go to travel farther. Um, So so you you get pretty, so there's lots of opportunities to engage in NASA science for these eclipses and just to really get out there and have a lot of fun. Well, I really appreciate you uh, talking with us and uh, look forward to trying to understand this more. Yeah, no problem. (laughs) It was a blast. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. To learn more or listen to other Science Moab episodes, visit sciencemoab.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Our theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding, and the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins, Christina Young, and KZMU. If you love Science Moab, let us know. Leave a rating on Spotify or a review on iTunes. And consider supporting Science Moab by donating to the podcast at sciencemoab.org. This programming is unique to Moab, Utah, and your support makes it possible.